<laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. We got sidetracked last week. We went down a rabbit hole, but we're going to stay focused this week, and we're going to get through at least a couple of uh, the paragraphs of Luke 14. Um, so remember, we're studying the life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels, and, and we've gotten into a particular section of the life of Jesus where Jesus is beginning to teach us in parables. We've seen parables in the past before. Remember, a parable is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. If you go and you take uh, communion, right? You take the Lord's Supper, that is basically a parabolic teaching or a metaphorical teaching. It's physical bread and physical wine that teaches us about the spiritual reality that Jesus' body was broken for us and that His blood was poured out for us. And so Jesus often in His teaching will use earthly things to teach us about heavenly concepts and we're going to get into a a, a pretty um, drawn out uh, study As a matter of fact i don't think we'll be done with it by the time i get done with you guys in november it'll probably be january or february or whenever when we get through some of these but there's a lot of parabolic teaching in the bible and we're going to see some of those today so let's go ahead and read the passage we're going to study we're going to look at luke 14 1 through 24 if we can get through that much i don't know if we will or not but let's look together at luke chapter 14 verse 1 through 24 it happened then when jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the pharisees on the sabbath day to eat bread they were watching him closely and there in front of him there was a man suffering from dropsy and jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the pharisees and said is it lawful to heal on the sabbath or not but they kept silent and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you has a son or an ox fallen to well, and will you not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And no one could make a reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the place. But when you are invited, go in and recline at the table at the last place so that when you, the one who invited you to come, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have the honor in sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever exalts himself, uh, humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus also went on to say to one of the ones who had, been, uh, had invited him, When you give a lunching or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. All right, we're going to go ahead and stop there because I think that's about how much we'll be able to get through today. So let's go ahead and go, go back to the beginning of 14.1. It said it happened that Jesus was at the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, and they were watching him closely. Okay, so Jesus has been invited over to a Pharisee's house. Now remember, 
the four the the three groups of people that often confront Jesus in his earthly ministry are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes or the lawyers, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, uh, and so. Why did they confront him? Well, a Pharisee was uh, the religious leaders of the day. The ones that wore the right robes and talked the right talk and walked the right walk and looked down on anybody else that did. And they were very religious people. Uh, and so these people would often confront Jesus. And and we also see the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of the Jews that were more of the the social Jewish structure. So it would be like the town councilman and the mayor and the governors and the the uppity ups in the community that that use their religion as a way to, uh the priests would have been the uh the levites the levites would have been the priests um and so when we see this we need to remember that all of these people are confronting jesus about his stance on truth and there's a reason why they're confronting him because his truth conflicts with what they believe now um, today is October 31st right the pagans celebrate Halloween we as good Protestants celebrate Reformation Day October 31st is the day that Martin Luther went and nailed the 95 theses to the to the church door right all right well one of the basic arguments that martin luther was presenting to the church at rome was their basis of authority and truth this is very important because it applies to us today as well martin luther Luther, yeah okay he he was challenging their basis of authority and truth well what do i mean by that okay well the roman church the Roman church believed that there was three forms of authority in the church. If you want to picture a three-legged stool, all right? So the, the platform is what we sit on. That's our religion, okay? And the three legs are the three forms of authority in the Catholic church. And this applies still today. So the three forms of authority in the Catholic church, does anybody want to take a guess? What are the things that, what is it that makes the rules and establishes what is true in the Catholic Church? The Pope is one of the legs. So this man literally has the same level of authority to make and declare truth in the church that the Bible does. He is the one that can interpret the Bible and tell you this is what it means. And his rule has just as much weight. Now remember, I'm sitting on this religion, right? And all three of those legs have to be the same length because if they're not, what happens? It wobbles, right? Not only that, but if you take one of those legs away, what happens? The whole structure falls over. Okay, so we have the Pope. It's known, actually known as the Magisterium. That's one of the, the legs in the, the church, all right, in their church. The second leg would be the Bible. Every Catholic believes in the Bible, right? Catholics believe that we are saved by faith. They believe that. The Catholics have a lot in common with us as far as the Trinity goes. They believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Where do they get that from? They get it from the Bible, okay? So there's two legs. But then they have a third leg. And the third leg... Jesus? No. The third, no. 
tradition or the teachings of the church. So, in 1950, uh, I think it was 1950, the church began to teach a dogma. That's something that you have to believe as a Catholic, that Mary ascended into heaven, just like Jesus did. The bodily ascension of Mary. So they came along and the Pope and the traditions of the church got together and said, we're going to teach this as a dogma. This is a teaching in the church. Um, It's the same way with penances. It's the same way with uh, indulgences. All of these things were based on what the Pope says, the Scripture says, what the Scripture says, and what the traditions of the church say. This is what we've always taught, right? But you can actually go back in their history and see where before a certain time they didn't teach that. So one of the things that happens in that system, in that religious system is, is that all of a sudden you start having conflict. Because the Pope says something that the Bible doesn't say. The Bible says something that the Pope doesn't say. And the Pope or the Bible say something that their traditions don't say. So what happens? You get confusion and disorder. For example... Um, Catholic, right? right. So here's an example: the Catholic priests do not marry, do they? No. Right? Why? Because the Pope and their tradition say they don't. It wasn't until about the 400s, I think it was, that the priests actually abstained from being married. Right? But about at a certain time in history, at a certain time in history, the Pope, the Magisterium. <coughs> came out and said, we're establishing a tradition. This tradition, what they say is this, this tradition was passed on by word of mouth from the apostles to us. And that tradition is, is that we, our priests don't get married. All right. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says it's better to marry than burn The Bible actually says that in the latter days they would come along with false teaching, teaching people to abstain from marriage. Now, when was the Bible written? It was written 2,000 years ago, nearly, you know. Well, watch. So what's happened is, is sometime between now today and when the Bible was actually printed, somebody came along and inserted a tradition that conflicted what the Bible taught. But what they will tell you is, well, the Bible says this, but we also have the traditions of the elders. We also have the traditions, the word of mouth that the apostles passed down, and that is why we established this tradition. Well, you can understand what's happening here. What's happening? There's conflict because the Bible says this, the Pope says this, the tradition says this, and none of them are, 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 are treating each other the same. All right, well, when Martin Luther came along, what he told, basically what he was saying was this. You've got to cut off the legs of the stool and the only foundation for our authority and truth is the Word of God alone. That's it. Traditions are good. The leaders in the church are good as long as they are walking in accordance with what the Scriptures say. So what Martin Luther is basically saying is, there's only one leg. There's only one foundation to the stool. And that is the Word of God. And the traditions and the uh, leaders in the church are built upon what it says, not the other way around. 
So the Roman Catholic Church will tell you that the only reason that you have a Bible is because their elders got together and established what the Bible was. They are the ones that determine which books go in, which books go out. So what they're saying is our magisterium and our traditions have now dictated what the Scriptures are. You see what's happened? They flipped it on their head. All right. I'm bringing all of this up because this is the very same thing that's happening with Jesus here. You've got the religious leaders. You've got the Scriptures of Moses. And you have the traditions of their religion, the, the, the mission of the oral traditions of their church. And Jesus is coming in and basing everything based on what? What is Jesus basing everything that He teaches on? The Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, the, the Jewish church is doing the exact same thing the Roman Catholic Church is doing. It's saying we have the Scriptures, we have Moses, we have our oral traditions, and we have our Pharisee, our rulers, our Sanhedrin, our top 70 guys, they're the ones that call the shots. And so Jesus is coming in preaching a truth that is based simply on the foundation of the Word of God and what's happening. It's exposing the leaders who are living the wrong way. It's exposing their oral traditions that are contradictory to what God's Word says. And they're exposing them for not relying on the Scriptures. They're relying on their traditions. They're relying on their leaders. They're relying on this is the way that we've always done it instead of relying on the Word of God alone. Do you think that's why they hated Him so much? They hated Him because He was proclaiming a truth that they were not standing in. They hate Him in the same way that somebody comes to you and calls you out on something that you were doing and you know you're doing it. And you get angry at them because they bring up something that you know you're guilty of. Right? Man should marry if they have to marry, go ahead. But if it's they better. can't, they'd be a God. Yeah, so the scripture, yeah, the scripture says it's better to marry than to burn. So if you can't control your, your physical desires, you need to just marry and raise a family. But it also says, so, so for my instance, I, I'm the pastor of a church now. I'm not married. The Bible says that you're supposed to be the, the husband of one wife. And there are some people, some traditions that say if you're not married... You can't be a preacher. You see? There are some traditions that say if you've gotten divorced, you can't be a preacher. Well, what do we do? Do we trust what we've always done? Do we trust what uh, tradition tells us? Or do we go to the Word of God? Well, the Word of God says that Paul said, if you're not married, don't seek to get, get married because by not being married, you can devote your entire time and your emotions and all of who you are to the Word. So the Bible says, Paul says, you're not married, don't seek to be married. Yeah, and so so watch this. I can tell you this: if the Lord were, were gracious enough to drop a, a, a God fearing, God honoring uh, wife into my life, I'd get married. Like I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But now I'm happy. I'm I'm actually content because I can put all of my time into helping to build the kingdom of God there on the islands, and I can put all of my time into studying the word and coming and teaching classes. I don't have kids that I got to go to soccer games for. I don't have all of these extra things. I don't. Have, and what Paul said is, you got to keep your wife happy, and that's so that's a lifetime. Right? So you, so you tell me a man can't serve God and serve his wife. No, no, nobody said that. No, nobody said that. What Paul said is, if you're not married, don't seek to get married because if you're not married, you can devote everything to the church. 
but the man who is married has to take care of his wife. It's going to pull him away from those duties. He has the obligation to take care of his wife now that he's maybe found, now that the two are one. You're not listening. You I listen. Either way, either way is biblically sanctioned. If you're not married, you can teach. You can be a preacher. If you're married, you can be a preacher. The Bible teaches that if you're divorced for a, a sound reason, if if your wife has been running around on you and everybody in the community knows it, you have the legal right, if you so desire. To divorce her, and that divorce is sanctioned in God. God hates divorce, but God made that a means of getting out of a relationship where somebody's being unfaithful. He actually said that if that, that there's only a couple reasons why you can divorce, and one of those is because of adultery. So, if I am a pastor of a church and I get married. And every let's just say, give for example the church I'm in now. Okay, so I, if I'm the pastor of the church, I'm single, and we're we're growing, and we're everything's going good, and God sees fit, or maybe I see fit to find a wife, and for a year or so we happily ever after, but all of a sudden she starts running around with somebody in in the community, and one of my deacons comes to me and says, Hey, your wife is cheating on you. I confront her about it, and she actually says, uh, Yeah. Yeah, I've been cheating. Do I have the right to divorce her? Yes. Now, watch. Does that disqualify me from the being a pastor now? Well, there's some churches there in some traditions in some churches I am now disqualified. You see? So what are we to do in a situation like that? We're to go to the word and let the word determine what we believe and why we believe it. And that's what Luther was saying when he nailed those things. Luther wasn't trying to destroy the Catholic Church. He was trying to conform it and get it back to walking in God's Word as opposed to living in traditions and trusting in the magisterium. So Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's gone to this Pharisee's house. Why did they invite him over? To watch him. To watch him and try to catch him in something. And that's the same thing when they didn't answer his question. They said nothing. Good. Now it says this. There in front of him, there was, there was a man suffering from the dropsy. Now, dropsy is basically, um, it's a effect of like the congenital heart disease. Like, um, so have you ever seen somebody that's got like a whole bunch of extra fat all over them because of water retention? Like their legs might be swollen up a whole. Right, right. What happens is, is your, your heart is not strong enough to pump all of the water out of your blood like you know to get it into your kidneys and get it out of your body and so you swell up when your kidneys start failing on you that's one of the things that happen but so this man is suffering from a, a disease where he's got drop where he's, he's swollen and so jesus uh was there were in front of the man that was suffering dropping jesus answered and spoke to the lawyer and the pharisee and he said he's asking them a question he said is it lawful to heal on the sabbath day Right? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. All right? Jesus is asking a question. And what is that question going to do? It's going to divide them. That's what Jesus' Jesus's questions... When Jesus asks a question, Jesus is always asking a question in order to get us to see 
if we're standing in right or wrong and get us to turn back to the truth if we're not. So and Jesus he has... He already knows the answer, so is the folks around. Right. So remember, when he's asking this question, it's the same way with you. It's the same way when somebody comes up to you and asks a question. They're either asking you that question because they want some truth, but sometimes people ask questions because they want to avoid the truth. Like, as long as I can keep you debating over something, then I don't have to come to a sound reason. Deflect. It's a deflection. Right? So, not only that, but a lot of... So, Jesus asks questions. Those questions that Jesus asks are always questions that seek the glory of God and the truth. That's the point of His question, to get you to see whether you're standing in truth or not, or to recognize you're not standing in truth and get you to turn back to God. Now, the devil asks questions too. But when the devil is the one asking the questions, the purpose of the devil asking the questions is to get you away from God. Think about in the garden. What he asked, The first question in the entire Bible is the serpent asking Eve, did God really say that? Now, the devil doesn't have the power to already know their answer like Christ does. The de- he's not omniscient. But, no, but, but you need to understand this. The devil knows the Bible better than any of us. He quoted it at Jesus trying to get Jesus to stumble. Right. So, there, so the devil will take the words of God and twist it around and make it say what he wants it to. Anything but the truth. But what he asked Eve, well, think about it. He asked her a question. Did God really say that? Did God really say that you couldn't eat from all these trees out here? Well, the reason that the devil is asking the question is to separate her from God's truth. You see how that works? Plant a seed of doubt. Yeah. Well, I don't know if God really said that or not. Wait, did he mean that? Like yeah. Here, Jesus is asking the question to people to rec- for people to recognize they're not standing in the truth and to come back to the truth. You see the difference in the two objectives? The devil is asking a question to separate us from the truth. Jesus is asking the question to bring us into the truth. And so you will see all the time, I have people come up to me every day and ask me questions. All right. I'll give you a perfect example. Are we under the Sabbath anymore? Like we're not, we're not uh, in Jews. Why do we have to, uh, why do we have to have honor uh, the Sabbath day on Saturday? Like we're not under that anymore. And what they're doing is, is they're not, what they're really doing is a lot of the people that are asking that question are people that don't want to come to church on Sunday, so they're looking for a loophole to get out of it. Right. All right? But there are actually some sincere Christians that will come to you and say, why don't we honor the Lord on the Sabbath day like the Jews did on Saturday? Right? That, he rose on Sunday. Right. So you, I'm trying to bring that up to get you to see the difference in the approach of the question. One person might ask me about the Sabbath because they want to go to Atlanta and watch the Falcons play football on Sunday. Right? And they need a loophole so that they don't have to be at church on Sunday. All right? And now I'm going to step on some toes of people that I know and dear friends of mine and and something that I was guilty of all of my life. Some people want to go fishing on Sunday. Some people want to go watch their kids play a baseball tournament on Sunday. Right? And so what they'll say is, well, we're not under the Sabbath, so we don't really have to go. 
Did that more to make it wrong? Huh? Did that more to make it wrong? You have to answer that for yourself. No, I'm asking. So watch. Well, you know, fishing sounds like to me it's not heart, really work. Well, I mean, so many people do it <laughs> right. as, as right. recreation or as pastime. Right. All right, so what, okay, all right, now watch. The reason that I'm bringing up the Sabbath thing is because we can spend the rest of our class today chiding back and forth about what's right and what's wrong. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm trying to make is this. The approach of your question shows the source of your heart. Am I asking this question because I want to know the truth? Or am I asking this question because I'm trying to avoid a truth I already realize that I'm not standing in? And so when Jesus is asking these questions, he's asking these questions so that people will either turn back to the truth and receive it or understand that they're not in the truth and then that truth will condemn them. So he asked them, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Am I breaking one of Moses' law by making this man well? That's what he's asking them. Am I breaking Moses' law? Am I breaking Moses' law by making this man well? And what are some of them people thinking? Yes, you're working on the Sabbath day. You're doing work. And we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Right? Well, the reality is is that Jesus gets them three or four different times about the Sabbath debate. Because one thing he said is your Levite priests work every Sabbath day. And they're not standing in a contradiction to, to Moses. Right. As a pastor, I can tell you, I get up, I go to church, I'm at work on the, on the Lord's day. Right. Um, Somebody's got to work on right? that. Not only that, yeah, we got policemen, ambulance drivers, people that do works of mercy, right? People that do works of ministry, hospitals. Right. There's all kind of people that are actually working on the Lord's day, and they're not in violation to the law because they're doing acts of mercy. But again, he he say he uses this example. He said, hey. What day do y'all circumcise your babies on? And every Jew would have said, on the eighth day. And he said, well, some of you on the eighth day take your baby to the temple to have them circumcised. And if the eighth day falls on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day, you still get the circumcision done. You don't wait till the next day to do it, or you don't do it a day earlier so that you can honor the Sabbath. You do it on the Sabbath day. So Jesus said this to them. You're cutting a man off and making him less than he was by doing a work with your hands. You're taking a razor and cutting that man to, and you are not breaking the Sabbath, and you're telling me that by me giving a man new eyes on the Sabbath that I'm breaking the Sabbath? It's a very good argument. Well, to me, what Christ is doing, the hypocrisy that I have gotten the impression that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the whole religious establishment was hypocritical. It was very hypocritical. And everything they did was for their own gain, not for the glory of God. And so Christ confronts them with these things to show that hypocrisy because, you know, just like he said, you know, can't you heal? Can't you take your ox out of the ditch? Yeah, and and we'll get to that. We'll get to his reply to them, his question back to them here in just a second. So again, one of the major conflicts in light, in Jesus' earthly ministry is the constant conflict between his proclaimed living truth and the traditions 
the oral traditions, the magisterium, that's the upper elite of the church, and their oral traditions of what the Bible really says. There's a constant conflict between this is the way we do it and thus saith the word of the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you a living example of that. I think I may have even shared this with you in the past. It's one of my favorite ones. I'm a Southern Baptist, and uh, as a Southern Baptist, um, we use Welch's grape juice in our communion services, all right? I just left. I just removed my letter of membership from my church that I love dearly in Effingham County and brought it down here. Well, at a church in Effingham County, they have um, the outer rings are grape juice, and all of the inner rings are wine. So you can have the option of either using Welch's grape juice or you can have the wine. But if you go to a Lutheran church or you go to an Anglican church, I can promise you there is no Welch's grape juice in there. It's wine. All right? It's, it's wine. Now, as a Southern Baptist, I had been taught all of my life that Jesus never would have drank wine. Jesus never turned water into real wine. He turned it into grape juice. Okay. I was taught that all of my life. That's the tradition of our church. So what do we serve? We serve grape juice. And you know what? In my new church, guess what we're going to serve? Grape juice. Because I am. Not, I think it's the fruit of the vine, and I am not willing to flip the apple cart over on his head just to upset people who have been living in a tradition. You see how that works? Let me ask question. Why do they put... New wine and new skins and old wine and old skins for the fermenting process. That's right. right. And what happens the in the fermenting process? It gives off CO2, and that is due to the fact that the car, the the sugar is turning to alcohol. Good. Right. All right. Hold that thought. We're going to address that in just two minutes. That is a perfect thing that we need to bring up. All right. Now watch. So all of these different churches have all of these different rules. Well, here's the reality. So I am a Baptist, and I can tell you that since about the turn of the century, since the early 1900s, during, y'all remember a thing called Prohibition? Okay, I can tell you that ever since Prohibition, from the time of Prohibition until today, Baptist churches have been serving Welch's grape juice. All right? Because during Prohibition, you, it was hard to get hold of the stuff because no, nobody was, was producing it. And not only that, it was a sin to drink. Like you are a sinner if you drink wine. Right? You're a sinner if you do that. Okay? So, what is the Baptist church is going to do? Because here's the reality. About the time of Prohibition, a Methodist deacon named Mr. Welch came up with a process to pasteurize grape juice. What does it mean to pasteurize something? Keep it from fermenting. Keep it, keep it from fermenting. We pasteurize our milk. If you don't have pasteurized milk, then in a matter of two days, it's going to be sour and you ain't going to be able to drink it. But Louis Pasteur learned to pasteurize milk and now we can keep it for 10 to 12 days. That's why all the people that come to my grocery store shop always dig to the back and get the fresh stuff instead of getting it. Right? Right. Yeah, everybody does that. And then I want then someone winds up with the stuck with the old date. But watch, it's going to sour, okay? Well, during the times of prohibition, a, a Methodist deacon who wanted to make sure that his church had something for communion figured out a way to keep the wine, the, the wine from fermenting. 
and he created something called Welch's grape juice. Well, from that time forward, every Baptist church, almost every Baptist church in the country used Welch's grape juice. And I can promise you every Methodist church in the country used Welch's grape juice. Even Presbyterian churches? I don't know. Yeah, y'all's picture at, at Grace Church Islands. We do the double circle. It's wine on, uh, it's grape juice on the outside and wine on the inner rings. Right? Why are they doing that? They're doing that to appease two traditions. There are some people in the Presbyterian Church that says that it's 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 basically it's unscriptural for you to put grape juice, pasteurized grape juice. Huh? Right, but there are people within the Presbyterian Church that would tell you it needs to be wine. So what does it represent? And there are people in the Baptist Church that say it needs to be grape juice. And so what most churches have done nowadays is they're appeasing they're appeasing both crowds. Okay, now watch. Why am I bringing all of this up? Because you have some people that say drinking wine is a sin, and if you put wine in the communion, you're sinning. If you, you're causing your brother to sin by putting wine in that cup and him having just one little shot. Of course, that same person, when they get a chest cold, goes and buys some Vicks Ave, a Vicks cough medicine, and it's got more alcohol in that little shot of wine. Right? Yeah, so, because it's sick. And because they want to get high, there's a difference. Right. Okay. You're exactly right. But the person that is coming, the person that's coming for the Lord's Supper is spiritually sick, and they're coming Okay. So watch. We have all of these traditions. Well, what are we going to do? My pastor said we can't drink wine. My pastor said we can't drink grape juice. My traditions say that this is what we've always done. We've always served grape juice. What we have to learn how to do is we have to understand that we love one another. I'm not going to bash anybody in the world who serves wine at their community, and I'm not going to bash anybody who serves grape juice at their community. I will bash if you use milk or Coca-Cola. <laughs> it needs to be grape. It needs to be a, vine, a fruit of the vine, okay? Uh, but I'm not going to smash you for that because there is some... There is some leverage or some leeway there. But here's the reality. You, as a wine drinker, and me as a grape juice drinker, should be able to come together in love and say, hey, why don't we put our traditions aside for a minute? Why don't we put our uh, what my pastor says to the side for a minute, and let's go to the Word of God and see what it says. And then you can reason together, and you can use an example like David said. Jesus talked about putting wine in new wineskins, and the reality is it's giving off CO2 and making the wineskin to, to, to expand. And the reason for that is because it's fermenting, it's turning into wine. All right? You could use the example of Jesus turning water into wine, and they're drinking the wine. They're drinking the wine, and what did all the people at the wedding say? Man, he saved the best wine for last. Usually he wastes up, I guess, drunk with the cheap wine and then brings out the good stuff. That's what he said. Right? None of them in that wedding uh, conversation said, why in the world did they bring out Welch's? Bring the MD back out. You know, like, you understand what I'm saying? Like, what are they saying? They're talking about wine. And it's fruit of the vine. And Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Right? He wasn't talking about Welch's grape juice. If you got if you got a stomach ache, right? Well, nowadays we take Robitussin, we take Rolaid, but back then they would take some water, wine mixed in water to settle their stomachs. Okay, so the point being, Who said that? Peter huh? said that. Paul said that to Paul, Timothy. Oh, Paul. 
That's another proof that the healing gifts have gone. Paul as the greatest healing uh, apostle of all, and what did he tell Timothy? Take a little wine when your stomach gets upset. Okay. Paul, Paul didn't have the ability to rebuke the stomach virus out of him. Gotcha. All right. Wow. So, the point I'm making is this: we all have our traditions. We all have our magisterium, people that we lean on. Guys, I have certain commentators, certain Bible theologians that I love, and I read everything they put out, but not everything they say is right. I like John Calvin, but John Calvin would have me thrown out of Geneva because of the things that I believe. There are certain things that he taught that I do not believe at all, and there are certain things that I teach that he does not believe. And it's the same way with my Presbyterian brothers. It's the same way if a Catholic person is truly a born-again, blood-bought child of God, I can promise you we're going to butt heads. Right? Because there's going to be things that he's taught and he practices that are just completely unscriptural to me. There are Pentecostals that fall out on the floor and do all kind of crazy stuff, and I think that is nonsense. I think it's utter nonsense. But I'm not saying that there are not brothers in Christ in a Pentecostal church. I'm not saying that there's not brothers in Christ in a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church or a Methodist church. What I'm saying is this. Every one of us as children of God, if you are a true child of God, a born-again child of God, a regenerate child of God, you should be willing to lay aside your traditions. And this is what my preacher said. Now, we need to listen to our pastors. Like, as long as what they're teaching is lined up with the Word. But we need to be willing to lay aside our traditions, lay aside our... I feel like that's one of our big, that's one of our authority figures in our life, isn't it? Well, I feel like, so we'll go with that as far as the oral tradition goes. So Jesus was fighting against oral tradition, the magisterium, false teachers, and he was fighting against, uh, what was the other one? The traditions. You see? So what we need to be willing to do is lay that aside and say, hey, my Presbyterian brother, why don't we go to the Bible's and let's reason together through what God's Word says and see if we can come to the common ground of His truth. Does the Bible anyway say you can't drink or don't get drunk? It says don't get drunk, <coughs> right? Well, okay, all right. But again, you have Baptist teetotalers that believe that they would never admit that Jesus created wine, alcoholic wine. Like they would say he would never do that. All right, okay. That he's still my brother in Christ, and I still love him very much. I don't drink today, guys, but there's a reason why I don't drink. First of all, I did enough of it when I was a sinner and a backslidden, wicked man that I don't ever have to do it again. And another thing is, is I know me, the natural me, and I have no business. One drink's good, right? Two is better. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't know how to slow down. I'm either going to run out of money or pass out. One of those two things is going to happen. And so I, I thank God He set me free from the desire to go out and live that life anymore. Amen. All right. But if I walk into a restaurant and my Presbyterian brother is sitting there having a beer, I'm going to sit down at the table with him and enjoy a good conversation and a good meal. I'm not going to smash him over the head because he's drinking. You see why? Because I believe that the scriptures well, teach. Give me two more and right? see if you'll pick up right? Pam. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to cause my brother to stumble. Right. <laughs> but the, the, so think about the reality of what I'm saying. We have to be willing to allow our traditions and what we feel to lay be laid aside and yield to what God's word says. And that counts for every one of us. 
Paul says in, in Corinthians, he says, there's going to be schism, there's going to be division among you. And there's a reason for that. And the reason he said there's going to be division, the reason he said there's going to be schism is so that the Word of God can be proven true. You see? What is Jesus doing? He's coming in with the truth, and what is it doing? Dividing the room. And not only that, on an individual basis, God's Word should be dividing you. As you read it, you're going to come across stuff and say, What? And you're going to have to go back. I, I, everyone in this room, the minute that I quote the verse, women should be quiet in the church, uh, immediately the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Who are you telling to be quiet? You see? Right. But here's the truth of the matter. It says, suffer not a woman to, to teach, not to be a preacher in the church. Well, I guarantee you that half the churches in Savannah have women pastors. Okay? Well, what I need to be willing to do is I need to be willing to lay aside my tradition and say, what does God's Word say? God's Word says for a man to teach men. Where's that in the Bible? Right. It's in the Bible. It's in, it's in Timothy. All right. So watch. What, what is the point? You, you understand? What's just happened? The hair is on the back. Wait a minute. My pastor's a woman. All I'm saying is this. We need to be willing to lay aside, well, I feel like, and this is how we've always done it, and learn to lay that aside and say, thus saith the word. And it should be not only for our church, there's going to be Listen, I'm going to have disagreements with, with my deacons, with, with, with my fellow uh, members. It's okay. That is okay. What we have to be willing to do is both of us, if the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and the Holy Spirit dwells in that person, then both of us will immediately be drawn to what He breathed out and said is true. And we should be able to come together in love and reason together through the scriptures. We have to So, I hope that um, gives you something to think about. I hope that challenges you. I hope that helps you to realize that the truth is a divisive thing. Amen. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us together. Thank you for this chance to come and to study your word. Thank you for, the, uh, for every person that was here. I pray that we will take these lessons these truths of yours and apply them to our lives in a way that will conform us to the image of your son christ and that you will allow us to go out now and share his love and his truth with us in his name we pray amen